So, I think we should go back in time to revisit some of the events of the past few weeks. Events in Acapulco, Dubai, Doha. Lots of interesting tennis scattered throughout the world. We were getting into a pretty heated debate about the trophy held up by Alexander Zverev after winning in Acapulco and uh, trying to decide if it's a pear or an avocado. What is it that you see, Matt? Okay, like it's it's got the stem, right? So mm. the stem really gives it away. Actually, I'm not I'm not certain why you ever thought this was an avocado. <laughs> well, Mac- Mexico has different looking avocados. There are avocados that are like really enormous. And I just thought that I didn't think that pears were necessarily a big thing in Mexico for some reason. Right. But that might just be my, my own well, ignorance. Also, I'm wondering what this, there's sort of like a little globe in the front, and it reminds me of like an avocado stone. <laughs> but why would the stone be on the outside of the avocado? Well, it's just, it's just sort of an abstraction to help you, <laughs> to help you understand what you're looking at. <laughs> Alex, can you? <laughs> but you got to break the tie, Al. I think it's a pear, but I understand okay. why you're thinking avocado because avocado, Mexico, a lot more affiliated in my mind as well than a pear in Mexico. But just from looking at it, I think it's a pear. <laughs> well, I think you broke the tie. I'm going with pear. <laughs> It's good to have you back, Al. We haven't had you on the call in a few weeks. Yeah, it's good to be back. So what else happened of note? I mean, there's some exciting stuff. This kid, Musetti, came out of nowhere, won some big matches. Aslan Karatsev won his first tournament at the ATP 500 level. Federer made his return. Yeah, there's been a lot of stuff. Karatsev really backed up his Australian Open run, didn't he? Uh, he thought that could have been just a one-off freak run, but then he backed it up by winning his first title a week or two later, which is very impressive. Yes. Um, why do you think he's made a deal with the devil? Oh, well, I, I'm just speculating why suddenly, out of nowhere, this 27-year-old has propelled himself to the top of the game. Um I would say it's suspicious, but there's no real reason to cast aspersions. It's just so unusual. You never see that. Yeah. It is Grand Slam debut, didn't he, at the Australian Open this year? Right. And all the way to the semifinal. And, you know, even throughout that, the whole time I'm thinking, well, he beat Grigor Dimitrov, but Dimitrov was hurt. And, you know, he had a couple big wins that are pretty hard to overlook. Um, several big wins. I mean, he beat good players. Mm. And was he competitive against Djokovic? I don't remember that match. Uh, I feel like that's where he ran out of steam. Yeah, it didn't feel like he could have won it. It was a, it was a match for the first part, but it, it didn't really ever feel like he was in control, like he was in control of his other matches, for sure. Yeah. But Djokovic mm. would do that to anyone. I think he's been top 200 for a long time, and anyone in the top... 200 you know um i was hearing i was listening to federer talk about how he chooses a practice partner and he's like anybody mm. in, the, in the top 200 has all the shots and is good enough to be a practice partner for me it's it's about the attitude and karat serves had his 
his betting scandal stuff. So maybe he just put all that behind him and then the mental games got together for him and, and now he's able to able to put it you know, all in all in mm. place. It is unusual, like yeah, there's but every now and then I think I feel like there's some player that blooms later in their career. Right. Yeah. I think if you dig into the story of Karatsev, he he seems to have moved around a lot. You know, he's had a, a variety of coaches and lived in different places. And I think your point about the skill level of players in the top 200 is really interesting. I feel like one of the commentators I was listening to earlier today was saying something similar. It's not that the difference at the top of the game is largely mental. It's not that these players can't hit the shots that can't, you know, don't have the weapons to win matches. It's just being able to lock it down under real pressure, mm. you know, in the big moments. Yeah, I agree. Putting together the strategy, choosing the choice of what shot and, and how to approach a game, well, that's, that's another thing besides having the ability to, to hit certain shots. Right. Yeah, and being able to do all that stuff on the fly under pressure. That was yeah. one of the things that struck me watching Federer's comeback, you know, which was a little bit up and down. You know, he showed, but he showed some signs of old Federer stuff that feels like when you're watching it, it feels like, like, oh, this person is just gifted. Like he, he does some things better than other players, which is unusual and with more grace and mm. yada, yada. But he just, he would make decisions. I think part of what seems magical watching him sometimes um, is the way he can make a decision on the fly that seems absurd and that, but works, you know, like just like when, when do you come into net? When do you decide to like, you know, instead of letting the ball drop, hit the attacking volley, you know, swinging volley out of the air. Yeah, I saw his first match. I didn't see his second round match that he lost, but in his first match, he looked great. I was impressed. Yeah. Uh, and I know, yeah, I noticed some of those same things as well. Just those instinctive, obviously, obviously after so many years, it's instinct, instinctive, but it was really just, it really f it was on display. I don't know, just like, uh, it felt so crisp and really good decision-making and shot-making. And I, I was I was impressed. Who was it against? I can't even remember. That's how good I was. how focused I was on Federer. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, he lost to Basilishvili. Yeah. And, uh, Dan Evans, maybe. Dan Evans. Before? Dan Evans, that's right. Yeah. And they were practicing together in Dubai before it as well, I think. Yeah, quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's what um that was the point about like who does he choose to practice with? He said like he practiced with Dan Evans cuz like uh yeah, he could choose anyone in the top 200 that all be good enough, but for him Dan Evans has a good attitude. He'll he'll come to practice on time. He'll um he'll be able to like joke around with him as well, which he thinks for Federer it's really important to have someone who um who like has he has fun with because he he reckons sometimes you get a practice partner and uh, they don't speak yeah like and it, it's just not um it's just not uh very social or or, ha or very fun for the mm. the other player and i'm sure for federer he probably gets players who are just like in awe of him or like don't know how to speak with him yeah. or something and Dan Evans just seems like yeah. the sort of bloke who is just not, you know, he's not going to act like he's all that impressed. Really. <laughs> yeah. He's just, just another guy. Um, so Federer lost to Bashilashvili, but, but uh, it was, 
Bachelet really who who won the tournament in the end. So, and it was a three set match, which Federer had match points on in that second round. That's right. So, yeah, um, good signs. So yeah, you could say that he was pretty close to the winning the tournament if on form on form. Yeah, it would have been interesting to see yeah. how see how his legs held up if he went deeper to see what his stamina was like if he had the chance to go deeper. That would have been interesting. Yeah, totally. Because it was like a long match against Evans and a long match against Basilis, really. Mm. And they're playing every day. You know, he went from not playing competitive tennis at this level for 13 months to, you know, really going right into the fire yeah. on a rest day. And um, yeah, it, I, I want, obviously, I wanted to see him continue. Like, is he really going to be able to compete or is this just a long, sad goodbye? You know, kind of like what's what's happened with Andy Murray, right? Yeah. You guys hear the news about Murray? Yeah, groin injury now. Sucks. Oh, this one's groin. Yeah. Oh, that's a bummer. Yeah. He said it's on the, on, yeah, it's on it's the other the side. the other side yeah. to his other... The other side of his groin. <laughs> yeah. What is that? Well, you know, it's like groin injury. <laughs> groin injury is that ha- tendon on the inside of your leg right up the top. And so this, this, is, yeah. this is on the left leg the upper left leg rather than and i think the hip surgeries are on the right hip i think something like that okay i guess you know this is just silliness but i i didn't really think of the groin as being muscles on both sides of the legs i just thought that you know it was like the the um the taint or something yeah yeah (laughs) not the genitals the taint the the region between what's the taint? Uh, it, it ain't the genitals and it ain't the butthole. Like I feel like I've strained my groin before. What are you doing? Playing tennis actually, like one of the five matches I played when I lived in Australia. I, I injured basically everything playing tennis mm. in Australia. Shoulder, uh, you know, back, groin, calf. Mm. Um I really think that it's not a great sport for me, even though I w- wish it could be. I would just need to really approach it with more warm up and play regularly enough to have those muscles in order. Mm. Uh, I'm just not in that shape, you know. It's hard on the body. So a lot of the older players down at Marrickville Club, are, they're playing doubles, which is like a lot less hard on the body, right? Yeah, not as much movement, not as much side to side. Yeah. But still the social aspects. Yeah. It's been one of the great sports during coronavirus too, obviously, because you've got all this distance and you're outdoors most of the time. I think it's been so pop. I think people have really kept it up because it's so hard to book a court these days post corona. Mm. It's a lot more difficult. Like courts that used to be available wow. all the time are fully booked all the time, every day now. It's, it's actually insane. I just wanted to make a Federer joke before we move on. You know, he was saying that basically his season doesn't even begin until he loses to Novak Djokovic at Wimbledon. Did he say that? I don't know if you heard that. (laughs) Well, no, what he actually said was my season, my season doesn't begin until grass. Oh yeah. Right. Which is sort of a way of being like, yeah, this is all kind of warm up for me. Yeah. Um, and grass really means Wimbledon. I mean, I guess it means Halle for him as well, because he's won that tournament like eleven times or something. I don't know. I was I was just bummed that he didn't uh, he didn't go to Dubai, and you know he's not playing in Miami. So um, just looking forward to watching him again. I I did uh, like I found myself just appreciating different things about him. 
I'm not like a guy who watches serves all that closely. Matt and I were talking about service motions and how we want to write some poetry about certain service motions. And mm. Federer's mo- service motion is just so, it just has this like natural rhythm to it. I mean, it almost yeah, I love you it. Know, can almost kind of put you to sleep, but it's so, it's just so easy. Yeah. And um, yeah. Hmm. It's definitely one of the better ones. It, he often gets overlooked for his serve, but he places it so well, and the service motion is so, so smooth, so beautiful. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, one mm. thing they were talking about, I think I don't know if it was in the Dan Evans match, but just how he, it seems like he can hit all of his different serves without varying his motion at all. You know, I think a lot of players, there's like a little bit of a tell, you know, they might like toss the ball a little bit in front of them if they're going to, you know, hit the the kick or whatever. There's yeah. just some kind of variance. And with Federer, it's all so repeatable, so tight. And um, yeah. yeah, like it, it almost feels like watching somebody breathe. Like it, it has that kind of natural vibe to me. Yeah, Kyrgios is famous for his consistent ball toss as well placing it in the same spot and mm. being able to hit all, all the serves from that one from that one toss. It's a very, like, if you can do that, I think you've got a huge advantage in in your service service game, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of these subtle things that, um, at, like, even if you go outside the serve, there's this ability that some players have to, to deceive in their shot making, like that the ability to hold a position just mm. long enough. And it's so subtle. Like you, you act like you're about to hit this attacking forehand down the line, and then you switch to a slice. Yeah. But you've gotten the the other player on the move because they're convinced that you're doing a certain thing. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah, like change the grip really, really late from a forehand shot to a little slice shot. Mm. Just holding that grip change to the last second. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that sort of thing, though, I like I do feel as much as those top 200 players might have a lot of overlap in skills and they can all play with each other. There are those subtle things that I, that do start to separate players at the top. I think that not just it's not just the mental part. There is there is skill difference. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Hmm. But yeah, uh, every uh, every year, yes, I, every year yes, I wish sir. the grass season was longer. But this year, especially, I wish it was yeah. longer. Hmm. Just to see the Federer. Just to see more Fed. Yeah, yeah. Just to let him let him come back properly. Let let him have his like yeah his prime surface a bit longer. So he's not gonna. There's not gonna be any. Clay I think he Federer, did say he's gonna warm up so. on clay. I just think he said there was some mention of like playing on clay to get match play or whatever just basically as a warm-up for grass yeah there's just not enough grass no it's it's interesting that it's sort of like wimbledon is the you know like the the primary slam or whatever you know people treat it like it's more important than the others yeah and like grass feels like the traditional surface or something and yet the season is like three weeks long i know it's crazy just doesn't track yeah Yeah, it's weird it's changed over the years because there used to be like the Australian mm. Open was on grass and the US Open was on grass. But I think just over the years, clubs haven't been able to maintain or the commercial interests have dictated that they want a surface that's always ready that doesn't cost as much to, ma- to be maintained. And so well, we've lost all these grass mm. court tournaments. Yeah. Yeah, it's a shame. I, I, I do think cost must have a big factor in it 
and you know like definitely explains the proliferation of hard courts throughout the world um i I don't know if i don't know if clay would be equally affordable to maintain i mean there's certainly like you have to get a certain kind of material in place it's not like you just you know go to the dirt shop and get tennis clay i think you do go to the dirt shop and get clay (laughs) you can i think that's how it works yeah huh but yeah you're right i mean like it is specialized i don't think it's as hard as it's not as um it's a bit more forgiving as a surface to maintain than grass right it still needs maintenance because it's a natural substance like you can't just let it sit alive in the way that grass is not like growing and like you have to cut it and make sure it doesn't die and stuff like the dirt is just (laughs) there and it and when it rains like it's pretty you can still play on it as well it doesn't pull the water as much as like even a hard court yeah so how about this kid musetti what's his first name is it lorenzo yeah i think it's lorenzo yeah lorenzo musetti He's uh, he's something, huh? I very much enjoyed watching him play. Oh, there's one thing that annoyed me about about his little run there in Acapulco, but I, I understand it because he's having a big breakthrough, but it was every match that he won, he would just lie down on the court and the other the other players like <laughs> right. standing at the net waiting to shake hands and he's just having like... It's, yeah. It's I like he's won a grand down. slam, but every match, every <laughs> single match, and then every time the player's just waiting in the net to shake hands and he's just like... Yeah, I was like, come on, mate. (laughs) Well, if you were like an experienced tennis pro who had won hundreds of matches on tour, who'd been in the top 10, you know, like a Dimitrov or something. He beat Dimitrov, right? That was one of his wins. Um, Poor Dimitrov. And like this 19-year-old baby who's never even played in a Grand Slam beats you. And and he's just like, the, the thing, obviously, I like Musetti because he's emotional. Mm. And I realized, like, as much as I wanted, wanted to like Sinner, because um, Sinner is also an exciting player with a ton of promise from Italy, like, Sinner is much more buttoned up and emotionally quiet. And mm. Musetti, it's just like very like open and warm you know he's like there's almost like a caricature aspect to his personality he's so he's so boyish he's got this big grin you know um and he's feisty you know he he just shows you what he's thinking all the time and it's cool that he can do that and still be good at tennis even though he's having an emotional moment or whatever yeah it's true i I, and he's he was really good under pressure too there was a couple points there was a couple moments i think he saved a bunch of set or maybe even match points and i think there was a really close tie break to to decide the match at one point and he just held his nerves so well and served it out didn't didn't falter any serve there was no faults it, you know it's just like really really impressive and just close to the lines wasn't wasn't playing it safe he just went all out and, and it paid off he won the matches it was, it was mm. very impressive did you get to watch him matt no, I haven't. Um, I must say, I've followed the news articles about him. Um, what is he? What's his game like? Because he, what kind of backhand is he? He have? has a one-handed backhand. You will be pleased to learn. That's good. Huh? So I think I think there's a real for a while there. No one was playing. It was just a few players with the one-handed backhand. But now, I reckon it's, there's a resurgence. Yeah, th- yeah. On the men's side, it comes up now and again. 
And I, I am noticing how much I tend to like players with the one-handed backhand. It never really felt like it mattered that much, but I think it just, it's just, you end up with more shape on the shot, which this is another thing I noticed about Federer coming back is just like how, how curvy his shots are, you know, like he just like hits over the forehand so naturally. And Musetti with, with his backhand, like this sweeping backhand down the line or Shapovalov or, you know, you just, um, Tsitsipas, it's just a really pleasant shot to observe. You get you get more of that top spin. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Musetti, the one thing like I, I think his defense is spectacular. He seems more he seemed almost Andy Murray esque to me, like way behind the baseline, just retrieving impossible balls all over the place. But then again, I guess the criticism would be like he's really far behind the baseline a lot, and I think the top players would probably take advantage of that right now. Yeah, true. Mm. sometimes like a young player is you know they really have a lot of like before they've had any injuries and they've got a lot of athleticism and energy um they can really like i remember leighton hewitt when he won the u.s open against pete sampras like in sampras's defeat speech he was like oh i wish i had those legs Mm -hmm. and I felt like Sam Braz was saying, look, you're not that good. <laughs> you just... Yeah. You could just run a lot, yeah. you know? Um, and if I was a bit younger, how I used to be, I would have beaten you. Um, and that was kind of the criticism of Hewitt as well, more widely. Um, mm. that, he, And it proved to be true. Like, he was only number one and a Grand Slam champion in those early years. And then the rest of his life, he was only a good player. How big is Musetti? Is he is he big or little? He seems pretty tall. I don't know exactly, but he seems pretty tall and lean. Definitely well built for uh, for a kid his age. Like he he has the physique of a grown male athlete, mm. and I think yeah, I think I mean he's north of six feet. I would I would guess six three ish, six two ish. Actually, he is six foot one. Kind of like the classic modern tennis body for men. I think. Mm. Cool. Um, yeah, definitely worth worth keeping an eye on him. I guess I mean he's playing in Miami, so big opportunity there for a lot of a lot of the young folks. Let's hope he stops lying down after yeah. every win, though. What if that What if that was just his thing? He's you know. Yeah, that could that could work, and you'd expect it. And then he could like do a different lie each time. He could do like on the back, on the side, on well, his tummy. If yeah. he's doing that, I'm I'm going to my bench and sitting down, and he can walk over to my bench and shake my hand. <laughs> could he? Yeah. Could he do the lie down after the handshake? Yes, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. No, that's that's a real thing. I think when you like, I don't know in. When you're playing someone else, you're like a nice person would think of their opponent, their defeated opponent, and be like, "I'm not going to make you wait." You know, it was a match between two of us, and now we go to the net and shake hands. Like, uh, yeah, I've always disliked the lie down. It just seems so um, self-involved when tennis is a match between two people. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. You generally only see it after someone wins a Grand Slam, like. Rafa or or Djokovic, that's or yeah, that, that's when you see them lying down. That you don't, you never see it in a round one or round two match of an ATP five hundred. You know, <laughs> like get that he's having a big breakthrough moment. <laughs> I, I understand yeah. that, but still, 
every match, every round to do it. It's like, come on. Nah. <laughs> yeah, th- I, I think that's all fair. But you just got to give him a pass because he's yeah, a kid. Yeah. If, it, if it became a habit. I mean, like, I think, like, I'm remembering when Shapovalov beat Rafa in Canada that one year when he was a teenager. And I think he did the lie down. Mm. And, you know, I can see, like, Rafa sweaty, like, shaking his head at the net. Just not really all that pleased, but also, like, Rafa understands, like, beating me is, like, kind of, like, the biggest deal in somebody's life a lot of the time. And, uh, you know, you just hope that they learn, you know. And also, it's it's just not good habit. Like, you you don't want to get that high over that kind of match. Like, a kid like Massetti, if he's really this good, he's going to win a lot of matches against good players it's going to become normal it won't be exceptional anymore yeah so yeah agree yeah um when magic johnson was in his 1979 rookie season Mm. he um they won the game i think it was the the first game and he went and and gave kareem abdul jabbar a real big bear hug okay it was just the first game of a regular season and kareem was like mate if you do that again, like we're gonna have problems because we've got eighty-one more games this season. You can't, can't do that. <laughs> That's a great anecdote. I've never heard that one. That's cool. Good old emotional magic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> hey guys, I just wanted to uh, quickly introduce you to my new friend, uh, who I made in the laboratory. His name is David Gravy, and uh, he's going to be helping us out with the podcast moving forward. Uh, Davey, why don't you say a few words? Hello, my name is Davey Gravy. I am here to assist you. Isn't that something? My programming has been carefully tuned to provide only the finest supplementary tennis tragic material and factoids. So one of the great things here is that Davey Gravy uh, really has no feelings or opinions uh, that are his own, and you guys can treat him however you like. Uh, you know, just think of him as sort of like a like a common house plant or a teletype machine. Lorenzo Musetti should really stop lying down on the court after winning matches, particularly if they are not Grand Slam finals. See? He's a learning computer. Why don't we, uh, we talk about Miami a little bit? So this tournament just started, and it's a weird one this year. Um, a lot of the men are out, the top men. No Djokovic, no Rafa, no Roger, no team, um, no Warenka. I mean, whatever. But no Murray. No Murray, Murray was going to play. Hey, what, the, what is, what is yes, this whatevering yes. Warenka? Hang on a second. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay, so I'm sorry. I, I, just, I, I was like putting him in, like, well, I was putting him in with all these other Grand Slam winners. Yes, all he's right. won Grand Slams. He just doesn't. He doesn't feel like he's at that level now. Yeah. But he actually, I, I was just like flashing back to a graphic that was showing who was out. And that was, you know, that was on it. He's actually had a foot procedure or surgery. I don't know if it's surgery, mm-hmm. but procedure at the moment. Um, oh, wow. I didn't realize He posted that. a thing on Instagram or whatever with his foot in a moon boot saying that, you know, I've had some pain or something, some issues with my foot. And I decided to have a procedure to... It's a bit, a bit vague on the on the details, obviously, but um, yeah. So he's yeah, out, out for a few weeks or months or hopefully not months, but weeks. Yeah. Mm. Just I, back to the weird uh, Miami draw. 
you know, I, I haven't really, yeah. I, I've known about the top players, a lot of the top players pulling out, but I, I'm realizing now that it extends quite far down the rankings as yeah. well, because usually you turn on the first round of Miami Masters 1000, and it's matchups between players you at least know or have heard about or are interested in seeing, but I've been, been turning it on, and this first round has been like someone you know that you know and you follow or whatever against a relatively very unknown player which is sort of surprising for a masters mm. 1000 i've found well so here's the thing i it, it's so that the tournament it's um a 96 person field so the top 32 mm. seeds all get buys mm. and not only that but like so today is the first day on the men's side that the seeds are playing yeah it's okay friday like so so that's part of that's one of the things that's weird about it i guess it it will go into next week the event but um it just feels a little off and like i was excited like oh we got an we got a 1000 atp wta joint event going on but those first few days of matchups like when they're they're doing these 128 um round of 128 matchups and they're basically qualifiers Mm. like it's just like another round of qualies and I think it just it creates this weird thing where, like, yeah, the top players, even not the best top players, just the seeded top players, like, have to wait all this time. And then everybody else has been grinding all week, mm. um, which I don't know if that, like, benefits the players who have been on court more or not. Um, but, yeah, I, t- I turned on... Um, I turned on the tournament the other day just to see what was what was going on. And I randomly settled on the uh, match between Vashek Pospisil and Mackie McDonald. Oh, here we go. <laughs> here we go. This is the, this is the moment we've been waiting for, and uh, and like at the end of the first set, um, like Pospisil gets broken and just goes completely haywire. Um, you know, he starts. He smashes his racket. Uh, like you know, throws it across the court. Like he, you know, like any. He, he's like in this mode where he just he basically tanks a game um, to give up the set. And then he goes on this like rant at the umpire and the umpire is actually like being pretty cool about it. I think the uh, I don't remember the name of the ump, but he was very skillful and kind of like helping. It's that um French umpire that Shapovalov hit that's in the eye. Right. Yes, that's right. Um, yeah, good to uh, see him back uh, in the chair. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, and... He doesn't have a lot of luck with Canadian players, does he? Yeah, I guess not. But in this case, the ump actually came through looking really good, like really human, Yeah, you know, not like a weirdo, asking him basically to not take it out on him. And then Vashek, the whole underpinning to this story is that apparently there was a player meeting with the ATP and the ATP chief, I think this is being pinned on Godenzi, Andrea Godenzi. Mm-hmm. Yeah like lit into mm. Vashek for an hour and a half about PTPA bullshit and things the players are saying. And Vashek was really upset about it. Like totally unrelated situation. I mean, obviously it's the same tournament, but it's the next day and he's on court and having a rough go of it. And you could just see the the pressure getting to him and it's pretty brutal. Apparently um, the, the ATP chair and was calling him uneducated and all this sort of stuff and and Pospisil was in tears during the meeting wow yeah that's fucked up yeah imagine that just while during a tournament and then you have, the next day you have to go and, and play the tennis that that's 
that belongs to this guy that's just made you cry in front of all the other players while you're just trying to unite. Yeah, yeah. It's a very rough situation. Did did Godenzi show up at the match? Was that part of what happened? I don't know. I don't think so. I don't yeah. think so. Because he was saying, because it's Arno, Arno Gabar is the French umpire that was um, in charge of the match and Pospisil was saying, get him out here and get him out here now and then, you know, if we want to talk about it and Gabar was saying, this is something you should talk to him about after the match. Yeah. Mm. Um, which was a good response, but I've, I've been thinking about this a lot and it's like, the tennis tournaments is Pospisil's and all the other players and everyone that's their workplace right and the professional um, tennis players association that Pospisil's working on is like you know this players union he's trying to use that to make his workplace better and then he's got the boss of the ATP Andre Gaudenzi trying to flex his muscle and put to bed this players association right saying because it's against the interests i guess of the atp in a way they want to hold on to their power and then pospisil and Djokovic with the players association is is maybe rocking the boat a bit trying to get more resources and organization for the players it's it's a threat but i just think like it's it's really been obviously stressful and upsetting and it's in his workplace and he's he's playing tennis in his workplace and like of course frustrations like it'd be like in an office if you had a meeting with your boss and then you came come out to the floor of the workplace and then you know you get in a fight with someone at the photocopier machine it's like the same thing Mm. it's kind of understandable yeah you know Djokovic has been involved in this new union as well um uh, he just just an hour ago or so Djokovic tweeted out um Mm. This concerning matters at hand, I'm not in Miami. However, Vasek Pospisil is my good friend and I empathize with him wholeheartedly. Players on tour would agree that he is an individual of the highest integrity who cares about the well-being of his fellow competitors. I'm hopeful players recognize the importance of standing together. Hashtag players voice. Yeah. Hmm. That's good. I, I do kind of wonder if like the reason the ATP is so frustrated is because they're under fire from all these different directions. Also, I think they're having a hard time keeping things together. Like I think the financial situation for the tournaments must be brutal. Mm. And it's not like the NBA or something where the league primarily exists in one country and you have all these like ultra wealthy owners who are who are able to prop the thing up. Like the pandemic has hit this sport hard. And I think the, the, the authorities are just thinking like, could we just fucking get through this mm. and then like sort this stuff out? Cause I do think there, it almost sounds a little selfish to be like, uh, whinging about prize money being reduced during a pandemic when there are almost no fans, you know, it's like the money has to come from somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the bosses often are under a lot of pressure because they're they're trying to run a a big corporation um in uncertain economic times obviously pospisil and the other players they're like we're we're the one advocating for your rights um they shouldn't be deferred just because there's an uncertain situation like often like companies want that like they want they want the workers to to struggle and make sacrifices right. when 
the bosses aren't making the same struggle and sacrifices. Yeah, that's a that's a very fair point, Matt. Like independently of the pandemic's impact on finances, I think it's right for the players to organize and try to get their fair share. And a lot of it, I think, is like just about transparency and and being at the table. I think like other major sports leagues have clear player unions that are able to bargain for their mm. their financial slice of the pie. And tennis doesn't yeah. have that in the same way. And that's why the PTPA is being launched. You got to have a union that's not affiliated, that's not incorporated into to the company like the ATP Players Association mm. is. You got to have something that's independent that um, can exert pressure, that makes decisions independently of the corporation. Yeah, otherwise it defeats the whole purpose. Yeah, and I'm really heartened to hear that this PTPA is caring, like is advocating for. Um, players that are outside the top 100, 200, like looking after the ones that don't get a lot of money at all. Mm. Right, I agree. Because I, I think that's a different lens on the health of the sport. I think like tournament owners and officiants, people who are working with the with the sponsors, like they, they have a vested interest in maintaining a status quo and uh, and from their perspective, like really, it only matters that the stars get their shine. But then, for the health of the sport in general, I think you want to have a deep bench. You want you want tennis to be a, a sport that players can work their way up through the ranks. That there's a place for that, because otherwise, it, it I don't know. I I think one of the interesting things about Karatsev, circling all the way back to that, mm-hmm. is that he. You know, he was grinding away on the tour at these lower levels, you know, basically in the minor leagues, playing challengers, future events. And, you know, it takes a lot to break through. It's really not trivial to break through, especially when you're at a financial disadvantage, you know, when you're not able to pay for the extra trainers and physios and all the stuff that like the the players in the top 100 have access to because of the prize money. Mm. Yeah, I was going to just make some comments about how much I dislike the new Miami Open location. Oh, where is it? Is it the uh, Dolphins still? Yeah, right. So it's actually not brand new. They they had it there two years ago, mm. um, but it's not. they're not using the stadium this year because there aren't that many fans. Uh, okay. There's a limited amount of fans in the place. But the thing that annoys me about it because I went to the la- I went to the Miami Open the last year they had it in the Keys and like you would drive down the coast of Florida and like across this bridge and you're like it really feels uniquely Florida mm. and you're like you're surrounded by water and it's just very peaceful and quiet and then the new one they're like it's literally in a parking lot I mean it's the parking lot of a football stadium and I was just in that watching that Pospisil match like you know there are fans there but the main audio sense I got was of the highway. Uh. Like you could just, every once in a while you hear like some, somebody with like, you know, one of these revved up engines, like muscling past or whatever. And it's, it's such a bummer. (laughs) It's like, you know, I I mean, maybe it's less noticeable of like the, the house is packed or something. And this is, this was an outer court and all, but 
Mm-hmm. I think it kind of just ties back to that whole thing about like, well, we don't have grass anymore because it's financial interest. Like Miami moved here so they could fit more people in. That's the only thing that matters. Mm. It's not the the quality of the event space or, mm. you know. So anyway, just wanted to end on a downer note. Yeah, I must have missed, <laughs> I must have missed maybe watching Miami when it was in the other original location. Oh, maybe I watched it once, but... Um... I don't remember the surroundings as much, but it sounds like a much better place to hold it, what you're describing, yeah. Yeah, it was just like, you know, it had this charm, like, mm. you know, it reminded me of, like, going to, like, the grounds in uh, in Brisbane with you guys, where it's just a little bit off the beaten path and kind of smaller and, like, a little older, mm. um, you know, not as built up. And for 1,000, you know, you kind of do expect it to be a little bit snazzier and modern. And and that was an, that's also part of it, I think. It just was, like, an older tennis grounds but yeah it had a very unique character and i feel like they went away from character entirely but that that also kind of suits florida (laughs) that's kind of like how i feel about florida in general it reminds me of sydney because the sydney tournament uh, was the new south wales open and then the sydney international but it was at held at white city okay um near rushcutters bay in like in this in the city not like out west at the Olympic right. Stadium, and they had wooden bleachers, and they had an old grass court there. They didn't use it, but it was it was there. And they had a, a second court was called the garden enclosure, mm. and it was like this kind of court surrounded by gardens, and the players and you would see the players, you know, walking around, and it felt like a a much more intimate experience that you don't get anymore. Yeah, right. The 2021 Miami Open, sponsored by ETAO, came to a conclusion on Saturday, April the 4th. Technically, it concluded on the 5th, following the men's final, an oxycodone of a match between Yannick Sinner and Hubert Hurkacz. However, emotionally, it concluded on the 4th, when Bianca Andreescu's body ultimately ran out of gas, forcing her into a retirement in the final against Ash Barty. 6-3, 4-love, with the scoreline, when Bianca waved the white flag. To say this match was an anti-climax would be an understatement. Bianca was the tournament this year. Every significant memory of play, for me, is connected with her matches. From the second round on, her matches became a priority in my life. I terminated work meetings early, inappropriately. The doorbell would ring, and I would choose not to answer. I neglected the birthdays of close friends. I failed to pay my credit card bill and received a harsh penalty on my APR. I lost sleep by staying up too late and waking up early just to ensure that I missed absolutely nothing. She was everything I remembered from the Andreescu of 2019. The thrill was back. Before her run this week, I had joked with the Tragic Boys that perhaps Andreescu had sold her soul to the devil in order to win the US Open a couple of years ago. How else to explain all the drama? The tragedy? It seems that her position in life is both blessed and cursed. Bianca is gifted with talents that are both visible and not. She's great at playing tennis in the mechanical sense, sure. She has all the shots, power and grace. 
she can pummel a crushing forehand just before dropping a deceptive short backhand slice on the very next ball. But what elevates her, what elevates the experience of watching her play, is that her matches trend naturally towards drama. It's as if she has a drama chip embedded in her skull. I, too, have a drama chip embedded in my skull. Well, that's different. Let me try to explain what I mean. When Bianca plays a match, no matter what the situation, no matter who the opponent, the match tends to morph into some kind of gripping melodrama. It's as if there's a script, and depending on the personality of her opponent or the clash of play styles, the match starts to unfold in a way that maximizes dramatic potential. Bianca might get down early, a double break lead to her opponent. Maybe she doesn't have it tonight. Then suddenly, a scrap to get one of the breaks back. Her serve threatened again, but held after a flurry of deuce points. An energetic break back at love. Into the tiebreak. Oh no, she's down again. Set points for her opponent. Surely this is the one where it gets away. But no, she finds another gear. She doubles down. She focuses her energy in a way that seems palpable, tangible. Set points saved. Set points on her serve. Oh, there's a forehand error. Not yet. Not yet. But she gets it back and she wins somehow, incredibly. How, how did she do that? And this doesn't happen every time. It kind of seems like it. Andreescu's expressiveness is such that it manifests in her physical being, but also in her decision making. You can see her visibly problem solve through matches. She played one of a series of gripping matches in the quarterfinals, facing off against Spanish number two, Sara Soribes Tormo, having previously dispatched Spanish number one, Garbina Muguruza. On paper, one thinks, well, here's a Grand Slam champion coming up against a scrappy underdog. And surely this is just where Bianca asserts herself and grinds the inferior player into dust. But no. Instead, Cerebus Tormo plays inspired tennis, retrieving everything, impossible to hit through. Cerebus Tormo seems like a natural clay quarter, the ultimate effort player, a little bit of her tennis idol David Ferrer present in the way she expresses herself. She scurries across the court like a mouse, but her racket collides with the ball in concert with this terrible, guttural grunting sound. She also puts all measure of topspin on her balls, kicking them high above the court. You can tell immediately that her serve is a liability. The Tennis Channel commentators, in fact, noted that she seemed to possess two second serves. Only one is very slightly faster than the other. In any event, Andreescu, faced with his player, is troubled immediately. Her previous two opponents, Anisimova and Muguruza, are flat power baseliners, crushers of the ball, linear players who try to overwhelm you with pace. Cerebus Torbo, on the other hand, represents a fundamental change of play style. The ball is slower, but spinning wildly in every direction off the bounce, the serve jumping nearly a foot higher off the court, on average, compared with the previous two players. And you can see Bianca visibly problem-solve her way through the match. You can see the adjustments, the stubborn unwillingness to stay troubled, the desire to find the winning formula. People often talk about the proverbial chess match in sports, the sense of two opponents reacting to one another's tactics, of seeing a play and reacting with intelligence, only to be countered and asked new questions, requiring yet another response in turn, and so it goes. Well, that's just one of the elements of watching Bianca play. Of course, it's not only the intelligence, the tennis sense, the problem solving. You could play with that without ever showing a pulse. 
but instead, Bianca shows you everything. I sometimes joke that I have the opposite of a poker face. If you interact with me, you generally know exactly where I stand, whether I want you to or not. And I kind of relate to Andreescu in this way. It seems that she lets you know how she feels after literally every point. She can pout and sulk and get angry, but then also forget all of that and just win points in games and show her delight and her amusement and her attitude. At one point in her semi-final match against Maria Sakkari, she hit an impossible defensive slice passing shot for a winner from about 20 feet behind the baseline, moving away from the net and off the court. And it was clear that she didn't see the flight of the ball or the fact that it just left Maria standing at net, wondering whether or not all of human existence was in fact just a simulation. When the socially distanced crowd roared its approval, and Bianca just breaks into this cheeky grin and points at herself as if to say, I won that point? Me? No. There's no way. So you just always know exactly where she stands. There's no bullshit. She gets frustrated with herself and then just visibly, actively works to pump herself up. She forgets what just happened and focuses on the point in front of her. It's a tremendous skill that she has and it has nothing to do with strength or technique or the grip of her racket. She just knows how to channel her energy toward the process of winning a match. So one thing I find particularly amazing and that also makes me wonder if there's some kind of unholy divine power at play is that I cannot recall ever seeing her play scared. Nerves are what normal humans experience during important moments. It's natural to think, I'm down set point. Shit, I better really focus now or I'm gonna lose. This is really important for my career. Oh fuck, the ball is in the net and I've lost the point in the set. I mean, that's what normal human beings do. Even legends of the sport, they'll show you their humanity through their fallibility. Even Roger Federer gets nervous, blows a championship point every now and again. But not Bianca, at least not yet. Everything is on the line and she just plays with courage and intent. She goes for her shots. You rarely or never so far seem to see her play a big point tentatively as if she's playing not to lose. Her ability to work her way through these very difficult matches is just so impressive and also so fundamentally entertaining. It's what I want to see in tennis, in any sport really. I want to see these conflicts, these battles with motion and emotion. So I believe this is why Angelique Kerber famously called her a drama queen after losing to her at the Indian Wells final in 2019. This wasn't the sledge that people thought it was. Actually, it was a compliment of the highest order. She was basically saying, Bianca, you are the queen of drama. Nobody does drama better than you. From now on, you're in charge of the drama around here. So for me, Bianca's presence is what made this tournament compelling in the end. Her victories, four dramatic, tense, thrilling, three-set matches in a row, culminating with her first final appearance in nearly two years against the world number one, Ash Barty. It was awesome, but then, tragically, frighteningly, another injury something about her foot. But who knows, maybe she'll just go and win the French Open now. <laughs>